Well, have any of you started getting Christmas cards yet? Got your Christmas card? So these start to come right at the end, uh, the end of November if people are on it, uh, if they're super organized. We are not one of those families. Uh, actually, I don't think we've sent out Christmas cards maybe ever, uh, but it's been, if we have, it's, it's been a little while. We did just get family photos done last week, so we have something to put on the card, which is good. Uh, but you, you get these Christmas cards, they come, you get a, a photo, you get maybe the, the people who write like a summary of their year. You know, we did this, we traveled here, the kids are doing this in school. Um, it's, it's fun to get Christmas cards, these expressions of love and family and, and reconnecting with people maybe that we haven't seen in a while and you look at the photo and you go, man, I can't believe how big their kids are getting and they're saying the same thing about your Christmas card. And uh, so, so imagine you got a Christmas card in the mail and inside you open it up and there's, you, there's a photo of like a wild looking guy with a beard and looks like he's wearing like animal skins. Uh, and you're like, okay, this is interesting. Uh, and then you, you read what the card says. You know, sometimes a Christmas card will have a, have a, uh, a verse in there, peace, peace on earth, goodwill toward men. This card says, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Bear fruit in keeping with repentance. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. And you think, okay, who gave the Unabomber my address? <laughs> Crazy bearded guy sending me this stuff. And then you look at the return address and it says, John the Baptist. <laughs> so this is a hypothetical situation, obviously, because John the Baptist is dead and there was no postal service when he was alive. But... It's an illustration. So who is John the Baptist? He is a, he's a figure in the Bible. He's the cousin of Jesus. And most importantly, he is a prophetic forerunner. That means he comes before Jesus and his calling, very specifically from before he was even born, was to prepare the way for Jesus, to prepare the way for Jesus the Messiah, for his life and his ministry, what he would do. So, so those words that I read from the hypothetical Christmas card, and if you get a Christmas card with those verses, please let me know because I just want to know who sent that. Uh, but, but those words were from Matthew chapter 3, and, and they're not something that, that John wrote down as a gesture of goodwill, but it's something he said prophetically and boldly to the, this group of religious leaders who'd come out to find out who is this guy who's baptizing people in the river and he's wearing camel hair uh, garments and he's eating locusts and honey. He's just this, this really wild figure. We haven't seen anyone like him for so long. So that's who John the Baptist is. But, but what does John the Baptist have to do with Christmas? What does he have to do with Christmas? That's a that's a fantastic question. Good job, you guys. Um, because we, we ask that question because John the Baptist, as a person, as a figure, the things that he does and he says, they feel very out of place. He feels very out of place with our 
present moment, uh, particularly at Christmas time. Uh, we're not real comfortable with a guy talking about repentance and judgment and axes being laid at the, the, the trunk of the tree when we're drinking eggnog and we're opening presents, right? That's just like, there's a, there's a dissonance there. They don't, they, these things don't go together. But you can't have Christmas without John the Baptist. In all four of the gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, we meet John the Baptist before we meet Jesus. John was born first. John went into ministry first. And his whole, his whole calling in the Old Testament and the New Testament is to prepare the way for Jesus. So John the Baptist teaches us the true meaning of Advent. And without him, without his preparation, the work that he was doing, we can't really, truly, fully understand the significance of Jesus' birth and Jesus' life and ministry. So, so we started this series on Advent last week and and really and truly, the, the season of Advent is meant to prepare us for the second coming of Jesus. That's really historically throughout the church. It's been designed and set up for the, for the people of God to prepare themselves for the second coming of Jesus. And, and just saying those words and you hear those words, the second coming, you feel the tension and the discomfort, right? Like, it's Christmas. Look at the nice decorations in here. Why are we talking about the second coming? It's just weird and uncomfortable. This is what Advent should do for us. It, it keeps us, it guards us from slipping into sentimentality and escapism and just ignoring the darkness that exists in the world around us, Advent is reminding us or should remind us of the many times that Jesus said things like this to his disciples, not to the Pharisees, not to, not to crowds of people, but to the people who were his closest followers. Mark chapter 13, be on guard, keep awake for you do not know when the time will come. Therefore, stay awake, for you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening or at midnight or when the rooster crows or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, including us, stay awake. Stay awake during the sermon, okay? <laughs> Christmas. The coming of Jesus tells us that God keeps his promises, that he is Emmanuel, that, that Jesus came as God among us to live and dwell with us. But Advent distinctly tells us, keep on hoping, continue longing, actively wait and watch for Jesus' return because there is more to come. We, we don't see the kingdom of God in all its fullness. So the first week of Advent calls us watch and wait for Jesus' return with hope. And the second week of Advent is calling us to watch and wait expectantly for a kingdom, for the kingdom 
of God. And, and we'll, we'll follow John the Baptist. He'll be our guide to help us see that the kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is here already, and the kingdom of God is not yet here. So we'll start with a, a passage of scripture from Isaiah chapter 40, and we've already referenced this during the call to worship, but Isaiah chapter 40, uh, verses 3 through 5, it's on page 599 if you're using one of the Bibles. Isaiah chapter 40, beginning of verse 3, a voice cries, in the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low. The uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, thank you that you have brought us here today. And that you're giving us an opportunity to, to be alert and to be awake. To have our eyes open to see who you are and to see the kinds of lives that you've called us to live as disciples of Jesus. People who aren't just looking back at what you've done, but are looking ahead to when you will finish your work. When you will complete all things. And I pray that, that in this season of the year when when we are looking ahead, we're looking forward to being together with family and with friends and, and eating dinner together and, and giving each other gifts and, and having these, these memorable moments that you would call us to look beyond that, that day on, on Christmas Day, but to look ahead with expectancy and with hope for the return of Jesus and that you would make us people who are ready, people whose lives reflect the reality of what is to come. We pray that through your word and through its proclamation today that you would awaken us, you would help us uh, to, to come out of our, our stupor and our, our escapism and call us to follow you, Jesus, once more. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. Okay, well, at the beginning of Mark's gospel, the gospel of Mark, uh, Mark, as the author, he quotes this passage that we just read in Isaiah 40, and he connects it immediately with, with John the Baptist. So Mark 1.4, after quoting the prophecy from Isaiah, says, John appeared, baptizing in the wilderness and proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sin. So Mark and the other gospel writers they all say that this prophecy from Isaiah is looking ahead, 700 years before, is looking ahead to this man, John the Baptist, who, whose calling was to come and to prepare the way for God's Messiah or God's rescuer who would rule as the king of God's kingdom. And we know that that at the end of the Old Testament period of time, uh, the Old Testament prophets, there was, there was a 400-year span of time where God did not speak to the people of Israel through, through any prophets. So there was this long silence, and, and 400 years. I mean, that's longer than America has been a country, right? And we think of our own history and how important that is to us. 
for the people of Israel, for the people of Judah, to have a God who has spoken to them, a God who's declared, you're my people and I'm your God, to be silent is, is an awful thing. And so after this period of 400 years without God speaking, here comes John the Baptist. And he is a prophet, like a prophet of old, like the prophets that Israel knows. These are the kinds of people that God sends to, to tell us what, to, to give us a message, to speak to us. And he says, the time has come. The kingdom of God is at hand. The kingdom of God is right on your doorstep. It's here. What an amazing thing for this man to come. And it, in all the gospels, they talk about the uproar that this causes, that, that throngs of people are going out to the desert, to the wilderness where John is, and they're being baptized, and they're hearing his message. So, so now we have to ask, well, what is the kingdom of God? Or, or some of the, uh, the gospel of Matthew often calls it the kingdom of heaven. What, what is the kingdom of God? How do you define it? And, you know, wouldn't you guess, there's no real easy answer to this question because you're dealing with... Uh, for one, you're dealing with an ancient culture, an ancient literature that's written very differently from how we would write things today, and there's a lot of prophetic imagery, and, and then it's just, it's just a big idea. The kingdom of God is a big idea. So there are books and books about what the kingdom of God is. There's disagreements. There's, you know, people say it's, it's kind of like this, or it's more like this, but here's the definition of the kingdom of God that has helped me understand it and, and it's been most uh, clear to me. So uh, Graham Goldsworthy, he says, the kingdom of God is God's people in God's place under God's rule. God's kingdom is God's people in God's place under God's rule. So, so think back on the people of Israel Right? They are God's people who live in the, the place that God gave them under his rule. He gives them his law. He gives them, he, they're under his authority. Okay, so that's, that's one definition that I think is a good one. God's people in God's place under God's rule. So for the Jewish people at the time of Jesus, the time of John the Baptist, this idea of the kingdom of God, it was, it was not foreign to them. It was familiar. So the prophets, they spoke about this coming kingdom, the day of the Lord, the, the, the final day that, that God would one day bring about all things so that, that God's people would live under God's, in God's place under his rule in, in a final sense, in, a, in an eternal sense. And here is John saying, that's happening right now. The kingdom of God is at hand. So this is a big deal. It's a tremendous seismic shift in the history of Israel. Right in this moment, John says the, the kingdom of God is here. It's at hand. And if that's true, everything is going to change for Israel because currently they don't live under the rule of God. They live under the rule of Rome and they've lived under the rule of all these other empires before that. So here is the key thing for us to ask. If the kingdom of God is at hand, if the rule and the reign of God, 
is right on the doorstep, what should the response be? And here's what John the Baptist says, Matthew chapter 3, verse 2. Here's the response to the nearness of God's kingdom. Repent, for the kingdom of God is at hand. The first response to the nearness of God's kingdom, his presence, his power, his rule, is repentance. Now, what is repentance? A lot of questions you guys have today. Uh, What is repentance? Well, this is not necessarily a definition of repentance, but it shows what repentance looks like. So some of you are visual learners. This might help you more. It's not actually a picture. It's more words, but it's kind of like visually said. This is what repentance looks like in the kingdom of God. If the kingdom of God has come near, is at hand, and the king himself is already present, then life must change. The old lifestyle of indifference to God and his will must be abandoned. Loyalty to the king must be the order of the day. Your life must become consistent with the fact that a king is present. Repentance is a, it's a change of life. We turn away from our old way of life, or as Sinclair Ferguson said, our indifference to God and to his will, and we begin living a new life as part of God's community, his people, under God's rule. So repentance is first a recognition of the authority of the king of God's kingdom, Jesus. We repent Because the king is here and he's calling us to live under his authority. So the call of Advent for today, for us, is to remind us to to say, hey, this is still applicable. This is still relevant. This is still the case. What John says to the people of Israel, he could just as well say to us. Because Jesus is coming again. Jesus will come again. It could be tomorrow. We don't know when he will come again, but when he comes again, it won't be in humility as a little baby in a manger. We know God's word tells us that when Jesus comes again, he will come as king and he will come as judge and he will come in power and glory when every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. What's another word for Lord? Ruler or king, right? Every tongue, when Jesus comes again, whether they want to or not, will confess that Jesus Christ is the king of God's kingdom, and every knee will bow. So as people who follow Jesus, right, if, if you're here and you say, I'm a disciple of Jesus, I want to follow Jesus, I want to live my life in alignment with him and what he's calling me to do, that's what we should be looking forward to. Jesus as the exalted king being worshipped and recognized by every person, by all of creation, because when Jesus comes again, We know, he said, I will put an end to all sin, to all evil, to all 
injustice. So that's what we're watching for. That's what we're waiting for. And in the meantime, while we wait, our lives should faithfully and consistently express our loyalty to the king. And if it's not, if your life is not expressing that, hear the call, repent, turn, go go live your life in the way that you should, to live as if Jesus is king, because he is. The kingdom of God is at hand. So John the Baptist, the first thing that he's teaching us about the kingdom of God is that it's at hand, that it's right on the doorstep. And the next thing he teaches us is that the kingdom is already here. That's confusing, right? It's, it's almost here, but it's already here. Just wait, it gets even, even better, more confusing. So John the Baptist, I love, I love getting to see this because he has the experience that's pretty unique. Uh, he gets to live within the things that he's been prophesying about, right? The Old Testament prophets, they all speak of things that happen you know, years and years in the future, but he gets to live in the midst of what he has been prophesying about. Jesus speaks about who is to come. He's preparing the way, making the paths straight, and then here's Jesus. He has come. Now, what he's been talking about, it's now a reality. In Matthew chapter 3, verse 13, it says that Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan, to where John the Baptist was, to be baptized by him. So what's John's response to the reality of what he's been talking about, showing up? The king is here. It's, it's a humble response. His response is humility. Verse 14, John would have prevented him, saying, I need to be baptized by you. You're the one who's the king. I need to be baptized by you, and you come to me? And we know that, that Jesus says, this is the way things are supposed to be. This is a moment that needs to happen. And so John does baptize Jesus, and, and it says that the heavens open up, and the Father declares from heaven, this is my son. I'm well pleased in him. He is my beloved son. We, we talked about the Bethlehem candle and, and, and the story of Christmas in general. It teaches us about the humility of Jesus, right? He, he comes as a lowly baby. He's born in poverty. He's born amongst animals, not in a, in a palace. And, and if you think about Jesus' whole life, it's not just his birth that's humble. It's it's every part of his life. He works as a laborer. Uh, he, he never gets married. He doesn't have any social status. He never owns a home. He never gets a degree. Uh, even his death is humiliating, right? He's abandoned by his followers. He's rejected by his own people. And he's turned over to the evil Romans, right, who are occupying Israel and they execute him in a most violent, humiliating way. But what did John the Baptist say about Jesus? After me, the one who comes after me is mightier than I, the strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. 
What we know about the kingdom of God from Jesus' life and his ministry is that it was not what people were expecting. Jesus is constantly confusing people. Like we thought it was going to be like this, but it's not. Jesus, the king of the kingdom, he's right in the midst of them, and they didn't even know it. And why didn't they see him? Is it because they were, is it because they were dumb or because they were just ignorant or because they were stubborn or obstinate? No, I think the people in Israel in the time of Jesus, they're just like us because we think of a kingdom as, you know, it should be strong. It should be, it should be majestic. It should be mighty. You know, the, the, uh, a good kingdom should have a, a strong king who overthrows all the enemies and, and that there should be status and accomplishments and, and victory. That's what a good, strong kingdom should look like, right? But the Jesus that we see in his life and ministry is a humble king. He's a servant king. He's a king who values things that no one else really values and says are important or, or great. And his disciples, they didn't get this either. They misunderstood the kingdom all the time. One example where Jesus says, hey, this is what it looks like. Matthew chapter 18. At that time, the disciples, they've been having this argument and they come to Jesus and say, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God? And calling to him a child, Jesus put him in the midst of them and said, Truly I say to you, unless you turn or repent and become like children, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And this is what John the Baptist teaches us about the kingdom of heaven of God, that it's here, because Jesus, the King, is here. And we have to humble ourselves in order to receive the kingdom, in order to receive the King. And it takes humility to turn our lives over to Jesus, to recognize him as King, because Jesus makes these demands of us. He says, you need to love people who are not like you. You need to live generous, sacrificial lives. You need to be holy. You need to stop trying to fix yourself. Jesus says, only I can save you. And humility, it, it takes humility to say, okay, okay, that's, that's how we're going to do things now. That's, that's the order. That's the hierarchy. Jesus is in charge and my allegiance belongs to him. My loyalty belongs to him. When I have a question, I accept what he says I, and I take that as my authority And John really reflects this, John the Baptist, in his life when there's this transition happening because John is, when he's out in the desert and thousands of people are coming out to see him, he's popular, he has influence, he has authority, right, that God's given to him. And that's, that's a powerful thing. 
But when John goes from being the prophet who's the forerunner of Jesus to saying, I'm, not un- I'm unworthy to, to untie his sandals, there's this transition that happens. And John chapter 3 talks about this. Uh, the disciples of John, his followers, they come and they say, Rabbi, he who was with you across the Jordan, the one to whom you bore witness, look, he is baptizing and all are going over to him. Something has changed, right? The people were with John and now they're with Jesus. And that, that leaves a, a vacuum. And, and his, the people who are with John say, you know, don't you see what's happening? There's a transition going on here. And John answered, a person cannot receive even one thing unless it is given him from heaven. You yourselves bear me witness that I said, I am not the Christ, I'm not the Messiah, but I have been sent before him. The one who has the bride is the bridegroom. The friend of the bridegroom who stands and hears him rejoices greatly at the bridegroom's voice. Therefore, this joy of mine is now complete. He must increase, but I must decrease. John knew his place within the kingdom of God. He wasn't the Messiah. He wasn't the king. He said, I'm here to point to the king. I'm here to help people understand who he is. It's a humble response to say, he must increase and I must decrease. He must be lifted up and I must be lowered down. And, but he says that in his humility, he finds joy. In his humility, he finds joy. My joy is complete. My joy is full. I could not have any more joy because Jesus is being lifted up as the king. The king is here now. And as we see Jesus as the king, it requires humility of us. We can't, there cannot be two kings of a kingdom. There must be one but John's teaching us that in our humility, in yielding our lives to Jesus, that we will find joy. We will find gladness. So John is teaching us that the kingdom of God is at hand. It's, it's about to be here, and our response should be repentance. Bring your life into alignment with the rule of the king. John also teaches us that the kingdom of God is here already because Jesus the King has come into the world and our response should be humility. Receive him, find joy in highlighting who he is and what he has done. And finally we see that the kingdom of God is not yet. The kingdom of God is not yet. So here's our final lesson from John the Baptist this Advent season, and I think it might be the most important one for us because it allows us space to ask, what, is it, what does it look like to live in the tension of the not yet kingdom of God? And, and what does that mean? What is the not yet kingdom of God? It means that, that in Jesus, the kingdom has come. Right? He says it, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. It's here, but it's not yet fulfilled. It's not yet 
complete. There is more to come. And, and I want to invite you to recognize that and to feel that and to acknowledge it. The kingdom of God is not yet here all the way. And there's still sickness and there is still sadness and there is still evil and there are all kinds of things that get thrown in our face and say, if Jesus is king, what about this? What about this? Look over here. Do you see these things? And John the Baptist, he, he knows this pain. He, he knows these questions of, of the not yet kingdom. And just, just as Jesus, right, as he moves into ministry, John's star is fading and he's in prison. He's put in prison because he speaks truth to the power of King Herod. He, he dared to say, there's a greater king, there's a greater authority and you, King Herod, you need to repent. You need to bring your life into alignment with the authority of the greater king. And he's put in prison because you don't do that, right? And while John is in prison, he begins to doubt himself. What if he was wrong? What if his message, you know, there's, there was false prophets in the history of Israel. There were false messiahs. What if... What if he had been wrong? And he sends a message to Jesus. Matthew chapter 11. Now when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, Are you the one who is to come? Or shall we look for another? I'm so, <laughs> I'm so thankful for these verses because it shows us that even the boldest prophets, even the guy who's up there with the most conviction to have separated himself for most of his life in isolation and to, to wear animal skins and eat bugs and honey, right, to live off the land, a guy that we would be like, kids, stay away from him, right? He has utter conviction in everything that he does. He calls groups of people broods of vipers, and he talks about judgment and the winnowing fork of God and the fire that is to come in judgment. But even him, even the boldest prophet, has to sometimes walk through dark places, and confidence can melt into questions. But I think the key thing for us to see is that we are not left there. And John is not left there in the darkness. Jesus sends a message back. He responds to the doubt that he hears in John's voice. He answers his questions. Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and what you see. The blind receive their sight and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed and the deaf hear and the dead are raised up and the poor have good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. This is such a beautiful expression of Jesus' love for his cousin, for John. And it's a beautiful expression of Jesus' love and mercy for, for us. Because Jesus 
recognizes our doubts. He recognizes when our confidence melts into questions. The, the, the kingdom of God is a complicated thing. And, and we have questions and we just, we feel all this tension and it's, it's complicated. But, but Jesus doesn't reject us for feeling that way or expressing those things. But what he does is look at who I am, look at what I've done and put your trust in me. You can, you can trust in me because what I am doing is the beginning of the kingdom of God and I will bring it to pass. I will bring it all to completion. He says, trust in me, put your faith in me. I love this quote from James K.A. Smith. He says, the call to follow Christ, the call to desire his kingdom does not simplify our lives by segregating us in some pure space. To the contrary, the call to bear Christ's image complicates our lives because it comes to us in the midst of our environments without releasing us from them. The call to follow Jesus complicates our lives because it says, follow me, he says, follow me in the midst of these things. I'm not, gonna, I'm not gonna pull you out. I'm not gonna put you in a place where everything is easy. You'll follow me in the not yet kingdom where all things have not yet come to be as they will be. And I think it's, this is a moment for us to just acknowledge the fact that we don't live or we do live in a time that feels like the not yet is, is all around us, right? Uh, Elizabeth Fondell, I was reading an article by her and she says, there is great sorrow all around us. The sorrow of loss following natural disasters, the sorrow over hate of the marginalized, the sorrow of war, the sorrow of political turmoil, the sorrow of sickness and death and failure. And in many ways, no days have felt darker than these. And you can hear in her Expression of lament, the same kind of voice that John expressed. Is it, is it you or is there something else that's going to happen? Is something, something were, were we missing something? Have we been waiting for the wrong thing? In many ways, no days have felt darker than these. But Advent tells us light is coming. The king is coming. And we are waiting, we are watching for the kingdom of God to come in all its fullness and all the glory of Jesus and all his power and authority. And we know, we believe, Advent calls us to believe that when the king comes, these crooked days will be made straight because Christ has come, Christ will come again. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, thank you for this moment to acknowledge our fears, to confess our rebellion, to be able to repent, 
to be able to humble ourselves, to be able to have our faith in you renewed through the proclamation of your son, Jesus. We need the good news of the gospel today as much as we ever have. And I pray that you you would help us to see, you would awaken our souls to the beauty of Jesus' first coming and to look ahead to his second coming and that we wouldn't just be sitting around with our heads in the sand just just hoping things don't get too bad, but we would have our heads up and our eyes up looking to you in prayer, in service, in worship, in obedience. Help us to watch and wait actively to be your people in the world today who are pointing to you, Jesus, who, who are willing to say that he must increase and we must decrease so that more people might follow you, Jesus, might see that the light has come and that light is coming in your kingdom, Lord Jesus. We put our hope in you today. Help us to keep putting our hope in you each day, each moment. We pray this in the name of Jesus, amen.